0: A very warm welcome on behalf of St Paul's Cathedral to the next in our online conversation series. Today I'll be talking to Anna Rowlands, who is the St Hilda Professor of Catholic Social Thought and Practice at Durham University. Anna is very well known for her work in Catholic social teaching and in ethics. In our conversation today, we'll be having a look at her new book, Towards the Politics of Communion, Catholic social teaching in dark times, and exploring the themes of Catholic social teaching and what it teaches us today, how we engage with the thought of common good, and actually how we understand this teaching in our lives and our practice. I hope that you will enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Anna. Anna it's great to have you with us today talking about your new book which is really exciting and I want to start by asking you a little bit about the subtitle to the book because I always think subtitles tell you so much don't they about what's in the book and your subtitle um, is um, Catholic social teaching in dark times. And the two bits I think are really interesting. So let me start by asking you about Catholic social teaching. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is for people who don't know what it is um, and kind of get us, help us get a sense of what you're t- tackling in the book?
1: Yes, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Paula. Um, so I suppose Catholic social teaching in my mind is a set of stories. And it's an attempt by the church, particularly by the popes from 1891 up until the present day, to tell a story about what it means to be human in the world, and then to subject all of the other stories that we tell ourselves about what it means to be human in the world to some kind of scrutiny. Because we tell ourselves stories all the time about what it means to be human beings, to be people who are born into the world, dwell with each other, and are mortal. And so really Catholic social teaching is an attempt to extract from the gospels this vision of being human and then to look at the stories that capitalism, um, liberalism, socialism, communism, fascism has told us over the last hundred years or more about who we are and so it's this great kind of dramatic narrative I think um, that tries to chart the, the, the in a way the changing ways that, that we consider being human so at one level that's what it is. At a second level, I think it's a kind of training and how to pay attention to the world. So it's an attempt to say, you know, the scriptures tell us that we're meant to read the signs of the times. And if you're gonna read the signs of the times, you have to learn how as a kind of spiritual and social discipline to really pay attention. And that means to pay attention to those who live around you um, in your own immediate context, but also kind of at a global scale. And that's sort of the ambition of Catholic social teaching is to attempt to read the signs the time to pay attention to the global dynamics of a particular moment. So in a more practical way um, CST is simply a set of letters um, that the popes in the main and also some national groups of bishops have written to the world and usually a pope will write anywhere between one and three or four of these social letters. And it's a snapshot of that moment in time and attempt to narrate the gospel, to narrate the world to us in a way that enables us to grasp something about ourselves and to to learn to to act differently in the world in our own moment, to claim being properly historical and time-bound creatures.
0: So have you got a favorite papal encyclical? It's probably the wrong question to ask, isn't it? But is the one that just kind of pops out to you as being your absolute favorite one?
1: Well, it's it's a really difficult question to answer and nobody's actually ever asked me that question before. So um, I suppose it requires some thought. I I mean, I had the privilege last year of working on um, Fratelli Titi, which is the most recent um, of the social encyclicals. So I suppose that's both very uh, much on my mind at the moment and something that for me, I had the chance of working kind of behind the scenes a little bit. I, I wasn't involved in writing it, to be clear, but I had a chance to be involved behind the scenes. And I think that there is something in this moment that we're living in now where I think there's so little thought leadership, really. So little vision that gets hold of just how challenging things are, but speaks genuinely Um, of a passionate and clearly articulated alternative. And I think that's what Fratelli Tutti does. And it starts in a world, Pope Francis talks about, dark clouds over a closed world that's how he diagnoses the moment that we're in now and he offers us this really kind of dystopian vision of the world that we live in now structured by increasingly um, severe borders and restrictions increased isolationism uh, an increased sense of them and us of real binary divisions in politics and of a kind of closed mindset um, that he thinks is deeply worrying and he counters that with a vision of the fundamental um, unconscious. Conditional relatedness of every human being on the face of the earth. We have a common creator and a common destiny. And what he wants to do is to use that storyline of a common origin and a common destiny to pull us back into a world where we learn how to be kin again. We learn how to be brother and sister and be unashamed of that. And to think really seriously about what the consequences are for every level of our social existence by imagining ourselves morally um, as brother and sister. And I can't think of something which which is both more challenging to almost every aspect of how we live, and yet also enlivening um, a, a real gift, uh, really. And the title of the of the document is, is Fratelli Tutti, um, which should be translated as sisters and brothers all, not just brothers all. But I think it's, it's almost like an imperative cry um, that he's giving us back our common naming. Um, and that feels like a real gift to me in this moment.
0: Um, going on to the other half of your subtitle, which is the dark times. Tell us why you put that in the subtitle and what that means for you as you're beginning to write this book.
1: Yeah, um, well actually um, I took the phrase from Hannah Arendt um, who is a 20th century um, social philosopher from a Jewish background who'd started off um, in Germany before the Nazis training in philosophy, ends up caught up and exiled because of the Holocaust and ends up um, as, uh, an academic, a journalist, a public thinker um, in America after the war. And she wrote an incredible little book called Men in Dark Times. Now, there were some women in the book as well, um, but she gave it the title Men in Dark Times. And there's a little essay in that which she dedicates to John Pope John Twenty Third. Now, Hannah Arendt was no lover of the church. Um, she thought that the church had been complicit in the Holocaust. She had all sorts of reasons for being very suspicious about some of the kind of social ideas that the church teaches. But in Men in Dark Times, she begins it by saying, however dark the times are, the one thing that we have a right to expect is some illumination. And the way that that illumination comes, Aaron says, is through lives well lived. It's not through perfect theories. It's through lives well lived. And I wanted to honour what Aaron was saying, really, in that introduction. To say that, you know, there are reasons why we could be very pessimistic about the world we live in right now in terms of the environmental crisis and um, in terms of I work on migration. So thinking about uh, people on the move, there's all sorts of reasons why we could be really quite pessimistic. But actually, uh, the challenge and I think the joy of Catholic social teaching is it doesn't shy away from naming the darkness of the times, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't leave us in that in the abandonment of that kind of pessimism. It says, right, we have illumination we have the gift of illumination in the form of the Gospels and in the presence of Christ in history and therefore we have no right to give up and we have to speak into this moment and to learn how to act well not just perfect theory but to live lives that illuminate and to allow ourselves to be inspired by the lives of others that illuminate. So the dark times in the title is not meant to be a kind of absolutely grumpy pessimism um, about the moment it's meant to be a searingly honest appraisal of the world but also the insistence that we have. a right um, to expect illumination and a capacity to give and receive it.
0: It's really clear from the way that you're talking that this is a real passion for you. Um, All of us who are academics we always kind of start with a passion don't we and then we kind of get into the academic field. Um, So why, why this topic for you? What is it about CST that so inspired you to become so passionate about it?
1: Well, it's funny how seeds that are sown in our childhood um, can take a while to come to fruition. And I first came across Catholic social teaching when I was part of a movement called um, the Young Christian Worker Movement when I was a teenager. And I was growing up in the north of England in a kind of Irish diaspora community and both my northernness and my kind of diaspora Catholicism with a, with a kind of Irish inflection to it uh, are equally important, I think, um, for, for my growing sense of who I was. And we had a curate in our parish um, and he was basically very young, He was in his sort of mid 20s, newly ordained, and interestingly, he was deaf. Um, And he set up a group for those of us in the parish who were either young people in work or young people who were studying to come together and each week to read a section of the gospels together and to talk about the things that had happened in our lives. And he used this method, um, this the Jack method of reading the scriptures together and really praying them, thinking about what we'd experienced in the world, read in the newspapers, um, experienced um, in, in school or college or in our workplace and to think about how to bring those two together. And he taught us the basic principles of Catholic social teaching. Now at the time, I didn't really realize that I was being kind of schooled in both the methodology and the content of CST, but I was. And I think for me, that was totally fundamental. And I went off and I studied politics at university at Cambridge for my undergraduate degree and politics was my great passion and I never thought I would come back to theology but by the time I'd got to the third year um, of my studies in politics I'd kind of realised that all the deep political questions were really theological at their root. So I had, if I was going to think seriously about justice or freedom, these were all categories that really I'd been wrestling with in my early teens in that group. And so I thought to myself, hang on a minute, there's a kind of depth to this tradition that I need to go back and explore. And I began to do that gradually. And I suppose there were two moments where that really then intensified for me as a kind of core intellectual focus. One was the financial crisis, um, and really beginning to think about where are the resources that enable us to think about a more virtuous economic model, where we move ourselves from becoming kind of supposedly democratic consumers in both our market and politics model. Michael Sandel talks about this brilliantly in his 2009 Reef lectures. How do we kind of get beyond that model um, of having fused market and politics together into something genuinely more in service of human flourishing? And the second was that I'd started to work in an immigration detention facility as a sort of chaplaincy visitor and accompanier and was beginning to come across the stories of young men from um, Afghanistan, um, from Iraq, um, from Eritrea, who had, had basically walked across deserts and then made their way up through Fortress Europe. And just listening to their stories made me realise that so much that I had taken for granted about a liberal political model, the kind of political system I thought I lived in, in a country like Britain, um, just the centre of that didn't hold for me anymore but neither did any of the mainstream models of left or right politics or centrist politics at that moment seemed to me to have the answers and so I found myself going back to that tradition that I had begun in my teens Um, and just the more I immersed myself in it the more that I found this extraordinary uh, developing narrative of being human and our kind of uh, various failed projects of the 20th century and a call beyond that in the cyclical tradition of the 20th century. And I felt sort of compelled to, to write on that, I suppose.
0: The way you talk about it just makes me want to go and uh, read much, much more about it. The, the passion that you have is just wonderful. And um, the book is in, dedicated to um, a sister, a religious nun. Um, can you tell us about her and why you dedicated it to her?
1: Yes, I can. So it's dedicated to Sister Pat Rob, um, who's a CJ sister. So it's kind of women in the Jesuit tradition. Um, although for a very long time, they weren't really allowed to fully claim that Jesuit tradition until a few years ago. And Pat's fascinating. Um, I first got to know Pat when I lived in London in my early twenties, and then again in my thirties when I was living in Cambridge. Um, and Pat had for many years been a nurse and a midwife um, in Africa, um, particularly in refugee camp situations in Africa. So she dedicated her life to working in really Difficult um, circumstances, determined to bring life out of death, um, determined in the face of every form of bureaucratic um, adversity, war, conflict, uh, corruption, etc., to wrest life from this. And the very spirit of Pat's life just struck me um, uh, over my years of getting to know her as being kind of the essence of what a tradition like Catholic social teaching was about. So, on the one hand, Pat was just evidently um, totally devoted to social justice. Um, And she was the epitome for me of a generation of women religious. He'd been involved in education, in nursing um, and in every form of advocacy and social action. She just was the epitome of that. But but to me, she was also um, and is still uh, my friend. And I suppose I had worked most intensely with Pat when I was I mentioned a moment ago that I uh, was a volunteer in an immigration detention centre for a while. And Pat was the chaplain in that and there's a, there's a passage in, in the scriptures uh, the story of the persistent widow and the unjust judge and the persistent widow comes back again and again and again and the unjust judge is unmoved unmoved and eventually the sheer persistence of the persistent widow um, changes the the unjust judge's um uh, decision or judgment and and Pat did this repeatedly in the center quite literally so she would go and she would see the head of the center uh, the immigration center and she she would demand from him justice um, in cases where people were, were really suffering in the most awful ways, including in particular at that point, the separation of women and children when there were still women being held. Um, And and she just across her lifetime really has struck me as both the embodiment of that broader tradition of women's involvement, written out of the canonical tradition, written out of the texts of the popes by and large, um, but totally at at the grassroots Catholicism that I'd grown up with. And um, I just have this great love for Pat. Um, And to me, she is the spirit of the tradition, living difficult, severe, persistent, dogmatic, utterly joyful and hopeful and unafraid to look the darkest circumstances in the face.
0: You mentioned there about women and it's really striking, isn't it? That a lot of advocates of CST or women. Um, is, there, is that a coincidence, do you think?
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? So much of Catholic social teaching is about countering the individualism of our age. Um, And that requires us to build communities. Um, It requires us to build from the bottom up as well as the top down. And I think very often the role of women in the Catholic Church has been as community builders. Um, and also as providers of the most extraordinary networks um, of education, healthcare, um, social action and so forth. And so I think it's unsurprising that women both historically have been those who have simply got on with creating the kind of communities that the documents talk about. In theory, women religious um, and lay women as well have been involved in those and sometimes at the more radical end of that as well. So testing and pushing the limits and the boundaries of the tradition itself. So if you think about somebody like Dorothy Day um, in the mid 20th century in America, I mean, Dorothy Day was a convert to Catholicism. She'd come from radical social action Um, and she brings this kind of Catholic anarchist fusion into setting up houses of hospitality um, and farm worker communities Dedicated to face to face relationships of care. So much of Catholic social teaching is about structural justice, but it's also about that insistence that we can never simply uh, hand over to other people as our representatives the duty to offer face to face love, care, and justice to others. Um, so Dorothy Day sets up these worker communities um, as houses of face to face hospitality, as well as advocacy on the big issues and involving prayer um, and study of the scripture together as well. And I think that extraordinary fusion of action, advocacy, prayer and care. There are so many examples um, of women throughout the world who've been involved in that and one of the sadnesses of the document I was mentioning before, Fratelli Titi, the most recent one, is in a sense it's dedicated to non-violent action in the world, to overcoming systems of domination, um, of peace building in every area of our existence from digital communications to state um, action, and actually, women have been at the forefront of peace building for generations, and yet they're they're not there in that text. So there's a kind of contradiction where women have been at the heart of the action around Catholic social teaching, but but still remain largely, sadly, written out of the texts.
0: There will be a whole load of people who are listening to you, inspired as I am, but saying yes, but I'm not a Catholic. Um, What would you say to somebody who is interested about what you're talking about, but actually is never realistically going to go and read the original texts or who feels that actually this is simply not for them because they're not Catholics?
1: Yeah, so um, there's sort of two or three things i want to say in in response to this. The first is that the documents are addressed um, to all people of goodwill. So the popes, when they write these documents, don't imagine that they're simply writing for a Catholic audience who think and speak and act Catholic. They imagine that they're trying to perform a labour, a work on behalf of all of us, that they want to draw all of us into. This is a massive kind of conversational act. So the popes write these letters to say, okay, well, I'm looking out of my window at St. Peters. And and it strikes me that the world of our moment looks like this. These are the predominant things that I notice about our world. And so that requires a kind of response. That's a communicative, a conversational uh, starter for 10. And the Popes want us to engage in that communal knowing of our times, of what it means to be human together. We can't know that on our own. Um, and the Catholic Church can't know that entirely on its own either. It requires a collective discernment. So we're being drawn into a conversation, drawn into a. What do you think of the predominant um Uh, realities that structure our experience of the world and what might we want to change about that? So the first is, it's conversational. It requires all of us to stop, to attend, to think. The second is that in order to act in that world, that also requires all of us. This isn't something that a group of Catholics can do together um, on their own. This requires a common world of action. And, and the encyclicals are really clear that the common good is something that we can only build together beyond our boundaries. It requires traditions and communities that are properly rooted, that have the stability to be able to act beyond themselves. But we have to do this as a communal um, form of knowing and a communal form of action. So it requires all of us. Nobody's see super- in that. So I think those are really key things. I also think that what's really interesting about this most recent social encyclical Fratelli Tutti is that it's the first to be written out of an interfaith encounter. It's written, and um, Pope Francis has had this extraordinary friendship with the Grand Mufti, and it's written out of an attempt to talk about human dignity and human fraternity, that's the, the language um, that, that the Grand Mufti and the Pope were using together. Um, they, they wanted to explore that, not just as the basis of ecumenical conversations, but as the basis of interfaith conversation. So much of the encyclical tradition attempts to, to articulate these principles, human dignity, solidarity, the common good, the option for the poor and so forth in what they would call natural law language. In other words, language that's accessible to all people of reason that anybody can get towards. And you might have a particular tradition that you're rooted in that Uses a particular grammar or set of imagery to tell the story of human dignity or the common good or the option for the poor. So we might have almost like speaking different languages that can be translated across each other, but actually the popes really believe that they're speaking to human universals that can be discerned within different traditions and offer the basis of communication and action beyond those borders and boundaries.
0: Thank you. That's really, really interesting and really helpful. one of the things that really fascinates me is that um, there is no such thing as Anglican social teaching. Um, not, there's a little bit more maybe of Methodist social teaching, but our, our more Protestant denominations don't have this strong strand of social teaching. Um, why do you think it's grown up so strongly in the Catholic tradition in the way that it's not in other denominations?
1: Well, there's layers to that question, which I think are absolutely fascinating. Um, the first is that I think um, that there are there are actually Anglican social theologies in the plural. What there isn't is a single sort of social doctrine um, in the way that Catholic social teaching is considered to be a social doctrine, a set of teachings which are binding, if you like, um, on the faithful. Now, I think we need to go back to almost the, the origins of 1891. So the world of Pope Leo Thirteenth um, and the writing of the very first social encyclical, Rerum Novarum. Now, nobody would want to claim, and it would be preposterous to suggest that Christianity had no social teaching until 1891. You know, the gospels are, are, are social teaching and so much of the writing of the early church fathers and mothers and into the medieval period, all of this is, is deeply social um, in its reality. But there's something that happens really for the Catholic church at the end End of the 19th century and that's really that their model for how you would speak to the world's leaders, how you would speak to the leaders of nations, how you would think about political power, that model breaks down and it breaks down partly because of the Enlightenment, partly because of the foundation of nation-states that separate the church and the state, partly because we move into this world of kind of early liberalism Um, And at this moment, the papacy basically realizes that it needs a different way to speak to the modern world. First of all, it cannot assume it has any natural authority in that world. It no longer has territorial power in the way that it did before. And we're not in a world of a fusion of kind of throne and altar where the church um, and a model of kingship could be kind of fused together. So they reach back almost in a moment where everything that they know about a stable way of operating in that world has been taken away from them not always willingly, um, they reach back into a much longer tradition. So they go back into the world of Thomas Aquinas, for example, um, in the medieval period and the world of St. Augustine, um, you know, writing about the two cities, writing the city of God. And they look back at what they have as a a kind of as a basic set of tools for thinking um, about the social, political and economic world. And they try and rework those for a now industrial capitalist age and one of liberal states. So there's a massive work of innovation that basically begins to happen in the late 19th century and that now each of the popes has then added to the legacy of. And I think it's almost understanding how absolutely thrown the Catholic Church was in a way by finding itself in this moment in the late 19th century and that out in a sense out of weakness um, in one sense um, and and a total kind of revolution and its own position Catholic social teaching is born. And I suppose In a way, the other traditions, particularly the Protestant traditions, have a different set um, of realities. There's a different kind of emergence for them in their relationship with modern nation states. So I think some of it is actually tied to that. Um, But some of it is, of course, because the Catholic Church has always insisted on a central teaching authority as well. And so it's social teaching. social teaching is simply um, a manifestation of that kind of that the position of the pope as a kind of uh, with with that kind of episcopate that kind of being an overseer a seer and a knower and a leader um, and doing that in relation to social political and economic issues not merely the sort of intra-church issues um, that you might you might think of Um, now that for some people is controversial because they don't naturally see that the church should have any kind of social teaching they think that's what the state does and the church does something else which is about kind of guiding souls and informing consciences um, but the Christian tradition has always insisted that it is a radically social and political with a small p entity because it has views about how we should live together in the world and what makes for human flourishing so really the Catholic social teaching tradition is simply an extension um, of that view that we are in our nature social and political animals and that the teachings of Christ bear out um, in in social political and, and economic life, and not only in this kind of narrow, very introspective um, kind of a way. But I think we should be absolutely clear that other traditions, including Anglicanism, have this extraordinary plural deposit of social teaching. And and the interesting thing for me is, because I work on both traditions, is is to kind of put those into dialogue with each other. I think very often Anglicanism has been much stronger on um, commentary on issues that particularly affect nation-states, so they tend to focus more on issues like work and employment, for example. Um, In fact, actually, Anglicanism has been better in some ways at talking about racism, um, I think in some ways, uh, than than Catholic social teaching has been. So I think there are ways in which Anglicanism quite naturally has a strength in relation to issues that affect us at the level of the nation state. Whereas Catholic social teaching has taken this global overview and developed this kind of superstructure of principles um, and attempts to kind of, on this vastly ambitious scale, read our moment. its global context so different strengths and weaknesses they're almost like kind of going to the gym and exercising different kinds of muscles that get developed in in Anglican and Catholic social thinking
0: you mentioned just then principles and what are for you the key principles of Catholic social teaching where where would you go to for to say these are the kind of the key pillars of uh, what, what the teaching contains
1: so, alongside that attempt that I was mentioning earlier, where Catholic social teaching is basically trying to read the dominant um, sort of storylines of what it means to be human in a particular moment, so how we relate to the environment or the economy or whatever, we, we end up with these major sort of storylines um, about being human, alongside an attempt to track those the social teaching tradition also offers a set of principles which it kind of gives names to and it doesn't sort of just do this in one go in 1891 and then it just stays still what happens is it's like being in conversation the principles develop iteratively as you try and put words to something and they then kind of develop and you develop a whole grammar around those ideas as you try and enunciate them and explain them to somebody else so it's a dynamic unfolding um, and uh, unending thing so the list of principles basically that would be accepted is the two foundational ones are human dignity, the idea that we're made in the image of God, we're bearers of human dignity and that that cannot be eradicated by anything that happens to us, that dignity is innate in us, but it's also something we have to struggle for. And I think one of the really uh, interesting contributions of black theologians recently has been to take the principle of human dignity and talk about how dignity is found in the struggle for justice itself. Somebody like Vincent Lloyd, I think has made really interesting contributions to the idea of dignity in struggle, um, not just as a kind of set status uh, because we are in the image of God. He talks about that as a dynamic thing in history. The second principle is then the common good. So the idea that, God is our common good um, and that the common good is something that we have to strive and build together so there is a kind of responsibility to build a common world, a common life um, but there is already a common good that secures that that common life Um, and there's much more that might be said about that Um, then the principle of solidarity the idea that we're not meant to just have a general vague empathy for our fellow human creatures we're meant to actually create structural ways in which we are able um, to seek the welfare of our neighbours and they us Thank yes the principle of subsidiarity, which is, of, of course, was killed, was totally slaughtered by the European Union process of using it as if it just meant sort of localism or federalism. Subsidiarity really is about a kind of mutual aid uh, that we have for each other and the importance of really making sure that power rests at the level at which it can best serve uh, human needs. So sometimes that means, and very often it does, keeping power and decision making as close to people's lives, the lives of those who are affected as possible. So the further away power is from those who are really dependent on the decisions, the more uh, chance there is of a kind of abuse or a gap in terms of that power really serving people. But sometimes it also means pushing power upwards. So if you think about things like climate change or migration, we're never going to solve those only at a local level. It's it's um, bottom up and top down. So it's thinking about how we need global systems for cooperation to solve some of those questions. So subsidiarity is a lot about thinking about how we act together, share power and how we participate. And then finally, the option for the poor. So the idea that um, in, in everything we do, we should be looking to place those who are most marginal from political power, economic power and social value at the heart of our thinking about policy, um, about innovation, uh, about new forms um, of structure. So taken together, those principles um, are meant in a sense to provide a kind of infrastructure for our thinking Thinking. Now, we don't apply them. Um, they're kind of guide ropes and they're, they're almost like a grammar, a way of trying to find words to express things that we have learned are absolutely essential uh, to being human well in the world, to seeking our welfare um, and grounding it. The words from, from um, you know, the book of Jeremiah, that God seeks um, our welfare and not our harm and our duty ourselves is to seek our human welfare and to minimise um, the harm that might come to us.
0: Tell me a little bit more about the common good. I think the common good is one of those principles that people feel particularly attracted to. What does it mean for you and why is it so important, do you think?
1: So the common good is a word that we use, or a phrase, it's not a word, a phrase that we use quite often. And I think that the problem is that we often mean very different things when we use that phrase. So very often when politicians talk about the common good, what they really mean is the national economic interest, for example. So this is a policy for the common good. What we should seek is the common good. And then very quickly, what follows from that is the idea of a certain set of privileges, with a certain set of people who, would be, who will be beneficiaries of those, so citizens in a particular economic register, et cetera. So politicians often use it in that kind of a way. Equally, political philosophers will use it in another kind of a way. So I referred earlier to Michael Sandel's 2009 wreath um, Lectures and he dedicated the last of those lectures, interestingly, to the idea of the common good. Now the common good for him means something a bit like it did for Aristotle, which is the highest good of the political community being a citizen so the thing that you that has most value in terms of a kind of social existence um, of a human being in time is to be a citizen to be a democratic citizen to be somebody who's forming political moral social judgments and values and acting for those in the world now i think that that's one element of the common good But i think the reason that we need a kind of gospel shaped christian view of the common good is that that view of the democratic citizen is just one corner of the field as it were, of the common good. So if we go to um, Augustine and the early church writers, And we think about the ways in which they talk about the common good they do a really interesting thing and what they do is they look at that earlier classical tradition that they knew very well and they say yeah okay so there is this thing called the common good and it's the highest good you can achieve together it's beyond just your own individual good or your private good it's a good that belongs absolutely to you but belongs to everybody it's a kind of indivisible world that the human being is part of with others this social reality So they're they're able to kind of honor what um, Aristotle meant by saying that, you know, being involved as a citizen on behalf of yourself and others is is this common good world. But they took the gospels and they said, okay, well, this isn't just about being a citizen. Well, not everybody's a citizen and has the luxury of citizenship even in the world that we live in now. It's not just about being a citizen acting in relation to political structures. It begins with something more basic, which is to say that the world itself is given to us as gift. The world is our common good. God is our common good. And what we experience in creation is the gift of life itself, the gift of bondedness and relationship to others, and the gift of the care and responsibility of others as they have for us. Now, the common good passage that's used by so many of the early church writers is a really concrete text. So often the common good drifts off in a slightly airy-fairy way in the way we talk about it now. But actually for the early church writers, Matthew 25 is the common good text. So this is about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, um, visiting uh, the prisoner and release to the prisoner, care for the orphan and widow. So how do you know that you're going about the life of the common good? Well, read Matthew 25. It's the works of mercy. It's the capacity to attend in in an embodied way, one human being to another human being. And by doing so, to build out of those absolutely concrete relationships, a common world worth living in. And I think that that demand for something beyond just disputation, beyond moral argument, because so much of the kind of common good of the political philosophers is still a slightly seminar room world. Of discussion and moral disputation. Now, absolutely, we need those public conversations about what's a life worth living? What does that look like? And we cannot think about a future beyond the climate crisis or beyond a crisis of human mobility and immobility or beyond the kind of models of inequality that structure our communities right now. We can't think of solutions uh, to any of those issues that, that. avoid moral disputation. So I think somebody like Michael Sandel is absolutely right. But the common good from a Christian point of view is about so much more than, it's a both and, it's moral disputation, it's practical citizenship, but it's a world of embodied neighbourliness, of learning as Pope Francis says in Fratelli Tuti, how to become a neighbour to others in a never ending um, process which extends outwards through your lifetime. It's not an attempt to fix the category of neighbour and lock it down it's an attempt to be invited to live a life in which those circles of neighborliness of kinship expand through your lifetime such that we come to know that we really are brothers and sisters um uh, to all, not that we can be involved with every uh, human being on the face of the earth, but to, in a sense, in, increase the circles in which uh, we're able to to give and receive care and love over a lifetime, and to act in such a way in the world uh, that we begin to create the structures, the institutions, the movements, and the communities that seem to honour the vision of being human that's in the gospel.
0: You mentioned just now um, how um, Catholic social teaching can in some ways feel quite intellectual, quite airy-fairy, and then went on to talk about um, it being grounded. Could you give us an example or two of where you've seen it lived out and gone, that's what it looks like when you actually live it as a human being in the world?
1: Yeah, I mean there are there are so many examples. Um, so uh, I mean, I'm I'm always very moved and impressed by the work of the Catholic commu- of the Catholic Worker community, um, and the Catholic Worker community was inspired by Dorothy Day, who I mentioned a little while ago, and that movement that Dorothy Day set up in America. Um, in the mid 20th century, survives now and is now a global movement. And it combines um, houses of hospitality with advocacy work, with radical campaigning, um, and and that seems to me to be almost kind of the full fusion um, of that vision of living in every register, from the immediate face to face to the most kind of structural level. Um, so, so I think the Catholic Worker community for me are an example of that. Equally, I think um, there are a number of communities, uh, Catholic communities globally, who are. Acting in relation to uh, grassroots um, climate change movements, who again are trying to form at the most local levels, ways of living in a more environmentally responsible way, but also um, campaigning um, on those issues as well. And I think anything that involves all of those levels of register, um, a capacity to live differently in the way you live your everyday life, to find ways um, of brokering relationships of neighbourliness with others um, in locations, um, but also to to stretch outwards, to be willing to think about the kind of structures and ideas that we live with generationally. They're deeply impressive. I spent about um, three years working with the Jesuit refugee service in the east end of of London, um, and they accompany people living in asylum destinations institution in the UK in the London area, providing very basic uh, food, travel vouchers, accompaniment, prayer, legal advice, and so forth. But that ability to be a community that's utterly face-to-face. When I was interviewing people there, I asked them very directly, well, why do you come here rather than go somewhere else? And people said, because here people um, address me by my name. I'm greeted by my name. The staff eat their food with me here. Um, and yes, I'm also given the legal support and um, um, and travel vouchers and so forth, Um, but actually that's available to me in in other places as well, but here I'm dignified by the way in which I'm treated with absolute dignity, I'm treated here as an equal human being, not as a number, not as a burden nor just as a recipient of charity and I think that capacity to form communities in which people experience the fullness of their own humanity and where where genuine and deep attention is paid, those are the contexts where I think Catholic social teaching um, is most alive. And actually, I think we can't underestimate um, how rare those communities are of deep and profound attention and where we feel. Um, fully dignified as human beings. I think many of us don't even necessarily feel that in our workplaces who are deeply privileged um, in in all sorts of ways. So I think we need those renewing contexts where we learn how to give and receive attention, um, where we're treated um, as truly dignified individuals, but where we're also doing that with our hearts and our minds and our eyes open um, to the realities um, of the wider world um, that we live in.
0: Thank you. That feels like a really great place to stop. Um, Thank you for your passion and your inspiration, Anna. It's been really great talking to you.
1: Thanks for having me.